Greetings, 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 good people, and welcome to Cat's Corner, the podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Cat O'Gaday, and welcome to episode three. I told you we're going to be talking about self-made, and I took my time because, <coughs> excuse me, I am, um, in, as a culture architect and as someone who is deeply concerned with creating meaningful black content, I wanted to make sure my approach was... I wanted to make sure that I that I wanted to be really clear about my approach. Um, I watched the the miniseries that uh, was uh, that has been doing quite well actually on Netflix, and um, I had a lot of thoughts. Uh, I was going to watch it eventually, but I think the thing that made me watch it sooner rather than later was the fact that my now seventy four year old Nigerian father loved. When I say loved, absolutely loved the entire series. Um, he knows that I teach in that particular uh, time frame when it comes to African-American literature. So I have, you know, we've talked about things over the years, you know, I've, you know, given him my perspective on why we as Africans living in America really need to be uh, more mindful and more respectful of the African-American history because it is a one that is full of all sorts of twists and turns and it is what makes it possible for every immigrant in my opinion to actually be in this country um as far as like legislation and civil rights are concerned so my approach to this is something that I really wanted to take my time on and I wanted to read a section of um a passage from the introduction of Frantz Fanon's Black Skin White Masks because I think it really speaks to why my approach is going to look the way it looks. And so the, the, the passage goes like this. This book should have been written three years ago, but these truths were fire in me then. Now I can tell them without being burned. These truths do not have to be hurled in men's faces. They are not intended to ignite fervor. I do not trust fervor. Every time it has burst out somewhere, it has brought fire, famine, misery, and contempt for man. Fervor is the weapon of choice of the impotent, of those who heat the iron in order to shape it at once. I should prefer to warm man's body and leave him. We might reach this result, mankind retaining this fire through self-combustion. I want to be clear with what I'm about to talk about and what I'm about to say that this is in no means, as a creative, I think we're all very sensitive about the work that we put out Everything is acceptable to critique. Nothing is above critique. But I also want to offer up an approach that doesn't necessarily directly target the creators, but asks all of us to think about moving forward, how do we create? So I see everything that is coming through this huge black, um, I don't even want to call it a renaissance, but there's this dearth of just black creators black content that's just beautiful like we are we we look amazing right now on camera but there's a lot of emptiness in the beauty and some of that is because we're just pressed to tell our story so we're just pressed to take that iron and bend it while it's hot and we don't take our time so I didn't want to necessarily jump out there with my you know two second you know sit from the couch uh, perspective I wanted to think about it because my my thoughts were there were two places that I wanted to to have us think through. The first place was just from the space of 
when you are creating content of this nature, how do we approach it? And then the second space is going to be from the place of, if we take the story as it is, given given to us the way it's given to us, what are the lessons that we can take from the actual story that's being told? I will say this, I would ask all of you who have watched the um, series, who are interested in the series, to please go and read the historical facts that we do have. These um, presentations, these uh, the content that is inspired by these actual people is never ever going to be rooted in the absolute truth. It cannot. The mundane aspects of being human prevent it from being so. Trust me, by the time you get to the memoir, what has been cut out is all the mundane shit that nobody really cares about because I don't care that it took your 57th cup of coffee in the space of, you know, three months to, um, to get to that idea. I want to know the moment leading up to that idea. So I'm not going to read through or sift through each day that you drank coffee and thought about your life. What I'm interested in is the moment that led to the idea. So for those who are upset with the way it has been um, done and the, the historical inaccuracies, we none of us should be looking for this, to, to, to this kind of content for historical accuracies. And I know that sounds sad or what, I don't know what it sounds like. Let me not assume that you think it's sad. Let's, let's be clear. This series was made for, for a space of entertainment and that is the way we should understand it. We should not be taking this as the truth of the truth because it does not, that's not its job. It is trying to tell a specific story um, and give some, some glimpses into the mythology of a woman known as Madam C.J. Walker. I will say this as well. We mythologize black icons partly because the master slave paradigm has tried to convince all of us that as black people, we are only capable of certain sort of low level, um, load bearing, labor intensive type of work. So if you've listened to previous episodes, you know that I'm also a professor of literature and I teach African-American literature specifically um, pre-enslavement to 1920 and then there's another course that's 1920 to the present. And so part of what I use to clarify um, some of what we're looking at in my classes is to talk about what I have termed the master-slave paradigm. And the master-slave paradigm is something that becomes solidified once enslavement specifically targets Africans. Once you racialize enslavement, because we do know that globally slavery has been here for quite some time but there was a time where your enslavement might not have been because of your skin color because race is a construct that was created for the benefit um, of justification of terribleness Um, but there's also this understanding that once you decide that Africans are going to be the ones that you're going to enslave and you now say because they're black we're going to enslave them, that it's God's duty, it's God's work, it's all the excuses that, you know, white supremacy uh, thinking or pseudo-white supremacy thinking allows itself to believe in order to justify the heinous acts of enslavement, uh, we get what I consider to be a clarified and rooted understanding about what black is and about what white is. 
master being white, black being slave. And on that spectrum across gender, you have white men with the most power because as, uh, as men in a patriarchal society, they possess power as white, as I, as idealized white, they possess the most power because they're the ones out here enslaving and snatching people. And on the other side of that spectrum with the least amount of power would be black women and black men, white women, black men, both have some semblance of, of privilege in their race and gender. And so depending on the situation, those two, you know, it's a mix and match thing. And it's also why I think when we see black men with white women, there is this integral fear that white men specifically have because it's almost like a melding of, 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 the, uh, of the privilege. But that's a whole nother story for another day. So that being said, with that understanding, we go into this world of Madam C.J. Walker trying to tell the story because of the way that black people globally have suffered under imperialist, under the imperialist forces there in this country, specifically the United States of America, there is this tendency to mythologize certain black folk. We mythologize, you know, Marcus Garvey, we mythologize W.B. Du Bois. Um, we should be mythologizing Anna Julia Cooper, but you know, that's another story yet again for another day. But Madam C.J. Walker is mythologized in a lot of ways because she is often presented as and seen as the first African-American millionaire. I did a little research. Um, that's all I know. And I want to be clear, I don't teach hair politics. Or I don't really teach uh, entrepreneurship as part of my of my background. So I don't I was trying to think about when I first learned about Madam CJ Walker. And I do not know that point in my timeline when I was introduced to Madam CJ Walker. But there is something in me that knows <clears throat> that she was the first black millionaire and that she um, sold hair care products. That's, his, that's, that's the, the limited understanding that I have in my collective psyche around Madam C.J. Walker. And when you are black growing up living in America, there are certain icons of the, of the black American existence that you just are exposed to. <clears throat> you may not know how you learned it, but you just have been exposed to it. I remember meeting Alivia Bundles, Madam C.J. Walker's great, great granddaughter, when her book first came out. And she talked about this process of discovering her great-great-grandmother. Um, she was very much rooted in this understanding of legacy and wanting to preserve the story of this woman and also wanting to um, kind of clear away some myths. So one of the things that I've discovered is that Madam C.J. Walker isn't necessarily the first black millionaire or the first African-American millionaire. She was just the most public, is what I've been able to gather. She uh, had a very sort of lavish presentation. She walked, you know, in her money, you know. She, she owned her, her, her richness. And I think that is part of the reason why she has been mythologized, because she kind of showed and, and told. And so, and I'm not, and this is not, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's your money. You do what you need to do. Enjoy it. And the fact is that she, because of her business model, was able to empower a lot of black women to make their own money. But 
the mythology is hard to get around. And we saw this with the Harriet Tubman um, film. Um, people were enraged, Cynthia Revo, she's not even African-American, all of these things. And I had to kind of, and I had African-American friends who had issue and I listened and I'm like, you know, sometimes I gotta just, there's some, there's some fights that are not for me. All I can do is sit back and observe. Um, but again, I remember watching that movie and thinking, most people are gonna hate this because there's a mythology around Harriet Tubman that really prevents us from actually seeing her as a human being. And there's a scene at the very end of the movie. Like the movie for me was, you know, it could have been on TV and I'm like, oh, that was a good effort. I really didn't feel like what they did was, um, was sort of blockbusterish. But there was a scene at the end when uh, Harriet goes back home after, you know, doing her war, her war, um, her wartime efforts. And she comes back to the house that is now the family house. She's gotten her people out and she's come home and the way and she goes to be embraced by her mother and there is physically a way that Cynthia Revo as the actress leans in to her mother that shows that that actually made me cry because there was this underlying exhaustion that as a black woman I could completely relate to and that was kind of for me the realest moment out of the entire movie for me that moment where she slumped in to her mother. She had done all this work and she finally got a chance to rest. And because of her effort, she was able to rest in her mother's arms. And that was something that for me, that that part shook me to my core. But that's kind of how I am. These are the things that I pick up on. Moving into the discussion around um, Madam C.J. Walker, it's a similar situation. This is a woman that has been mythologized. And in a lot of ways, um, compartmentalized because her money is made through black hair care. Her entrepreneurship, I think oftentimes is, um, is, is people try to diminish it. And it's only getting props because she made a lot of money. So I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of how I'm looking at this, that we are telling this story of someone who is mythologized. So this is already someone who we know historically was a philanthropist, um, created opportunities for black women, was deeply concerned with black women's um, scalps and hair care. And if we really sit back and think about how we treat black women around hair, there's so much that could be talked about just in that. But that's not why I'm here. Today, I'm here to look at this from the perspective of what are our responsibilities as creatives and creators of content when it comes to telling these stories. So overall, spoilers through and through, maybe. If you haven't watched it, maybe you save this for um, a later date. I don't know. We'll see. But I wanted to say that so we can get into it. So there are... Four points that I want to make in part one. And part one is about just sort of how the story gets told. Part two, I'm going to say, let's go into the actual story itself. Let's remove, you know, you know, suspending all belief and, and kind of being in our feelings about whether or not it's historically accurate. We'll leave that at the door. and We're just going to go into the story. So this is part one. And in part one, I want to talk about my disappointment. 
because I think the thing that I found most disappointing without even knowing the historical context of everything was the positioning of um, Addie Monroe, who is the lighter skinned woman that we see helping Madam C.J. Walker at the beginning of the series and um, how she plays this nemesis role throughout the, the narrative. The story itself, Alelia Bundles has written her own, you know, researched, you know, narrative around her great great grandmother. One of the things that she says, because there was a lot of pushback and there were a lot of people that were upset, particularly the family of Annie Malone, who is the real life person that was the noted rival of Madam C.J. Walker, um, not Addie Monroe, who was a fictional character that was created for this series. So Addie Monroe is not a real person. She never existed. Annie Malone did. So let's just sit with that for a minute. This was mostly black women on the cre- on the back end creating this from the producer to the director to the person that wrote it, all black women. And you removed an actual person and it replaced her with a fictional character so that you could create a rivalry based on colorism. Let's be clear. Colorism was then and still is an issue. I am not saying that colorism is not an issue, but damn it, if the best you can do as a black creative is base your entire narrative around what is troubling two black women, if you, if all you are able to do is do a light skin versus dark skin thing, I cannot. And I shan't with you. It's disappointing because we know that colorism is a thing. Uh, you know, most of my favorites, Zora Neale Hurston, Dorothy West, they talk about this in their stories. We know that this is a thing. And I'm not saying that it doesn't have a place in the narrative, but to, to literally base, create a foundation around what this rival entails on colorism is just lazy. It's lazy. And I think that's the word that, yes, that's the word. It's lazy. And I'm going to challenge all of us to not be lazy. Remember, I'm not attacking the creators. What I'm saying is what we can learn from this. A lot of people are, were upset about it. And, you know, I had a couple of really great conversations with some of my, my comrades in the arts about, you know, you know, what I thought and why I was having issues. Cause I'm just trying to figure out how to sort of contribute to the conversation in a way that makes sense. Cause in my head it makes sense, but it might, I don't know how it's coming out. So you, you take these two black women, you, you make one a fictional character that is light skinned and long haired so that you can juxtapose um, what Madam CJ Walker looks like against that. And it just, it's lazy. And I really think that at this point in the 21st century, there's a way to talk about colorism without having to to deal in white supremacy and anti-blackness because that's what it felt like it felt like it was like oh you know what this is what we're gonna do and that narrative has a place in lots of our lives as a darker skinned black woman i grew up being challenged and bullied by black people about my skin color and my complexion so it's not that i can't relate to this narrative to this idea but 
to base all of it simply on the fact of this one woman doesn't make sense. There is not a darker skinned or a light skinned or a brown skinned black woman who has had to deal with complexion wars that has only had to deal with it from one place. It's usually a mixture of things. And so even in the composition of how the story is told, where you make, um, you know, fake Addie, this nemesis, and all you focus on in, in the way that Madam C.J. Walker's psyche is working, because we see, you know, these flashbacks to a boxing ring where this, this nemesis she's fighting, you know, is this light skin, you know, she's, and we see her throughout the narrative pushing this thing of, I want my face. I want, I want, I want, uh, you know, the imagery, the aesthetic around my products to look like me. And we reduce it to this one light skinned, long haired woman. That's, it's, that's lazy. And it doesn't do, it doesn't do the, the complex issue of colorism it doesn't give it its right and proper place because it is nuanced. It is, it, it, it is a nuanced thing. Madam C.J. Walker was married. You know, colorism didn't stop her from getting married. It didn't stop her from having children. It didn't stop people from buying her products. So to make that, that light skin, long hair versus, you know, short, dark skin, whatever, as the foundation was just, it was, it was problematic. And so part of the, 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 the issue that I take in just the, the narrative initially is we need to decolonize how we deal with conflict within the black space. This is an opportunity as black people to tell a story about another black person. And we are still utilizing the tricks of the, of the master slave paradigm trade. And that is the part that I, that was disappointing. Like, there's a space where the story can be told where we can completely decolonize ourselves of how black women deal with each other. Two black women don't have to get along. In the real life understanding, no one apparently knows why these two were rivals. We do know that Madam C.J. Walker did in fact work for Annie Malone. She was one of her, you know, that model that Madam C.J. Walker is famous for comes from her lived experience. She, whatever she did, she definitely took it up a notch, but she got that from somewhere, you know, because that's kind of how these things are. And so Annie Malone is someone that did give her an opportunity, you know, and however she chooses to improve on what's happening, that's the nature of doing business. But to take the story where there's a truth there and want to reduce the, the rivalry to a simple matter of you're, you're too dark to sell my products, that just was terrible. And we need to move past those things. We need to understand that as people living in the world, as black folks, the amount of um, anti-black like understanding it surrounds us like blankets, like wherever you go, like, like blankets, like there's nowhere you can go in the world where you're not going to deal with that in some way, shape or form. And it's not always coming from white people or so-called white people. It comes from a lot of people. So it is not as though we are not being exposed to this, but we need to understand as creatives, as black people, that our exposure to this barrage of anti-blackness on a regular basis does have um, the possibility 
of showing up in us and how and, and it does have a way of of tempering and 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 um and and muddying our waters when we create so there i really wish there had been a space where the critiques because alila bundles does um say and there's a link that i'm posting in the in this the, the section for you to to take a look in the description box she does say in an interview that she did she did have the um she was given the opportunity to review the scripts and she did send back notes most of her notes were not taken into consideration she even says that the language that is used between the two women in the series would not have happened in real life so there has to be a decision as creatives that that gets made where we decide if we're going to tell the story let's decolonize our work first let's look and see where we are just repeating what white supremacy has tried to say about us and what that requires is a respect for the people that you are telling the story about so respect madam cj walker enough to know that the truths of, of how she lived are out there for the world to see it may not be pretty it may not be comfortable to know that she actually worked for annie malone it may not be comfortable to know that she might have you know tweet a recipe that she would have been exposed to as someone working for annie malone and then created her own stuff it's possible that madam cj walker was shady and that's okay too the thing about it is we are humans and we are messy. And the problem with the mythologization of black people is that what happens is we want to create these, you know, these, these Jesus is on crosses and act as though even in that time with all of the stuff that was happening, black people didn't get along. These two women had beef. We don't know why, but they had beef. And so to erase Annie Malone from, from the story and create a fictional character just so that you could push this very um, raggedy foundation around colorism is just lazy. And if the team had been a, a white set of producers and directors and whatever, we could say, ah, oh, well, you know, that's what they do. But it wasn't. It was black folk who were behind this. And the great, great granddaughter is telling you, yo, this part here, I don't think so much. This is a woman who's done the research. This is a woman who wrote this book, you know, a while, like decades ago. And you're, and she's telling you, mm, this ain't the, maybe not this. And you don't take that because again, you are stuck in a space as a creator where that white supremacist, that massive slave paradigm is feeding into how you create. And I say that because the assumption I think is that if we don't create some sort of spice in this situation, people won't watch. So now you're insulting me as a, as, as a watcher, as an audience member. You think I can't handle a story where these two women are rivals, but we don't ever know why. We just know what we know. You think the only way that we can process Madam C.J. Walker's story is through this veiled, lazy, propped up cardboard, you know, soapbox of colorism. And then to take it further, because you have based your, your foundation on that, you now have to do this thing where you basically demonize this lighter skinned black woman. Um, 
So that by the time we get to the part where, you know, Walker boldly says, yeah, I stole your formula and I made it better. Because you've been feeding us this narrative that somehow in this space, this lighter skinned black woman is some sort of perpetrator because all she had to do was just let, you know, Madam CJ Walker sell her, sell, you know, sell her, her, represent her in the hair care stuff. And this never would have happened. Don't do that. Stop. That's lazy and it's dangerous because it sends a really, um, again, steeped in this master slave paradigm understanding around how black people should behave. And I will go on record in saying that black people should behave the way black people want to behave. We are not a monolith. The master slave paradigm suggests that we are. The master slave paradigm also suggests that there can only be one. So while there is proof that there were maybe six to seven um, African-American millionaires during the time of Madam C.J. Walker, we tout her as the first. And in a lot of ways, we tout her as the only because that's the problem with this kind of thinking. It's lazy by nature. Ma the master slave paradigm is lazy. It's a lazy, you know, paradigm to throw at the world, but it's so lazy and so simplified in his thinking that it works and it sticks and it continues to perpetuate itself even without enslavement. Sit with that. So when you think about what is happening here, the danger in the way that this series is created is that it feels to me like there wasn't a, a scrubbing. Like there were points where we could have said, hmm, let's not do this. Let's take a step back. How does this contribute to anti-blackness? How does this contribute to this idea of white supremacy? Because part of the problem is that, you know, white supremacy has got people feeling like we can't argue in public, we can't disagree and all these other things. And when black people do disagree, there's this, oh my God, you know, they're watching. Who gives a shit? What I did appreciate about the story was that it was able to highlight the fact that there are all of these very messy and contradicting ways in which black folks are being with each other because before anything else, black people are human and humans are messy. This is what we do. You know, from the, the granddaddy talking to the husband to say, don't get your, you don't get your honey and your money from the same place to at the same time realizing that his son ain't really shit without Madam C.J. Walker. And that if everybody had just played their role, the power couple idea could have actually worked. This idea that Madam C.J. Walker is basically insecure because of her dark skin and her hair. And that somehow if she could just grow hair, she will be, she'll be so much better. That feeds into this master slave paradigm idea around aesthetics and beauty. The fact that we pull her out and we erase another woman that act, another black woman that actually existed and looked nothing like the characterization that is portrayed in the, in the series. The fact that you even have to erase this woman to suggest that you can't tell the story of Madam CJ Walker without a real life rival is lazy. Rivals make us better the, and that's just what a competition makes us better it may take us to a dark place but it makes us better when you are out here just milling about what it does is it makes you lazy madam cj walker didn't get to the place that she got to 
because she had no competition. And I do think that there is a space in her narrative, in her personal narrative, where she deeply understands that the lack of tools for black women when it comes to how they care for their hair is part of the master slave paradigm. The idea that black women are ugly, especially if they aren't close to white. The idea that they need to cover their heads because that is a sign of, of, of you know, um, servility. Like all of these things. She wants black women to own their beauty. And she understands that particularly because one of the things that doesn't get discussed enough is the fact that these products were necessary more than likely because a lot of black folks didn't have the access to some of the, as urbanization and industrialization starts to happen, you know, a lot of people don't have indoor plumbing. A lot of people, you know, that water might be hard on the scalp. A lot of people are dealing with all kinds of infectious skin issues because they're malnourished, because they, you know, because they're not getting as much sun, because, you know, maybe their clothes are, you know, they ain't wearing breathables. You know, there's all of these things that are associated with why this hair care line was so important. And then the fact that it's minimized by the portrayal of Booker T. Washington. I still haven't been able to find out if that was true, but with what I know about Booker T. Washington, I'm, I'm betting that there might be some, there might, it might be a, a kernel of truth in there. This idea that women's, black women's hair is not a necessity and it's not something that requires attention or should be given the stage. That all feeds into what the master slave paradigm wants us to understand. Because when you look at pre-enslavement and you look at adornment and aesthetics, even now there are aesthetics and adornment aspects of black women's beauty that has existed long before all of, you know, before all of the things that take place that get us here. So this notion that women have not adorned, have not aestheticized, have not found ways to make their skin more supple, to make their hair grow if, if, if long hair is part of their culture is nonsense. The fact that as a black creative team, you aren't willing to decolonize yourself enough to find that nugget because tying Adam C.J. Walker's products to the, to the inadequacies around how black people, in terms of what resources black people have, is also really important. Any woman at that time spending that 50 cents on a tin of, of hair care product is, is doing something for her own self-care. The scratching of dandruff out of someone's head, the greasing of scalp, that's ritual. That is ritual. And to ignore that in favor of this really vapid, you know, um, low level approach to this story is, is the reason why I'm unhappy. There's so much more that could have been done in terms of really delving into what it means. Like if you've never had your scalp grease, I'm going to tell you something. Hmm. I, I, you know, coronavirus time, we're dealing with this pandemic and I went to check on, I have, I'm a professional auntie, so I have 10 nephews and nieces. And one of my nephews um, is growing out his hair. He really wants to twist his hair. I don't think he wants to lock, but he wants to twist. So he kept saying, auntie, can you cornrow? Da, da, da. I'm like, yeah. 
The texture of hair you have is very similar to your father's, so we need it needs to grow. He's got this weird straightness um, at the top, but the root of it is is really is really kinky. And he kept saying, "Why well, have 4C hair?" Which blew my mind because I'm not a fan of naming patterns. I think that that whole measuring pattern thing is terrible. And it's to me, it is another example of how the master slave paradigm seeps into our sense of ourselves. I'm not giving my hair pattern a name. That shit is dumb. But when we were talking through, I was like, well, you have to take care of your hair. So I greased his scalp. And I could feel his body like just relax, you know, as he sat in front of me, I, you know, went through and I greased his scalp and I massaged his scalp and it was a moment. And there were opportunities in this work to show those moments. Because if I'm washing clothes six days a week, I'm not concerned about my hair. I'm wrapping that joint up because I need to get these clothes washed. But if on that seventh day, I have a ritual of someone scratching out my dandruff and greasing my scalp, that's, that's care. And so there were lots of opportunities to highlight what it means to be a black woman of that time in a way that was compassionate and in a way that was a more nuanced and this very heavy handed response to the master slave paradigm. It's like we know the time frame that we're living in or that we're that we with that she exists in the, the clothes, the, the, the music like we are. We got that. We, we don't necessarily need a heavy handed. Hey, message. Racism exists. Hey, message. Colorism exists. Hey, message. Black men and colorism and sexism all living in the same place. There are ways that those things could be handled. But when we look at this particular work, all I see are the hallmarks of the master slave paradigm. And it's dangerous. And we need to be better creators and stewards of these stories because these stories should be able to inspire you to go out and do something more. And the trauma that we experience, the trauma that we live is very much part of that. But to reduce someone's trauma to one person is, is dangerous, particularly in the narrative that's being told here. It's not simply about, you know, what Addie Monroe wouldn't let Madam C.J. Walker do. It's about this idea that you could only be beautiful if you look like her. And while we know that that is part of what happens, spending a lot of time making her to be out the bad person and then, you know, you know, throwing in, you know, the there's a scene where the mother of Addie Monroe calls her looking for money. So then you throw in her dark-skinned mama, who we know what you're insinuating is that the mama was a, an enslaved person and that Addie Monroe is probably um, the, the, the product of, of a rape. You throw that in so that, we can have, so that we can see that Addie Monroe has a hard life too. We don't see Addie Monroe's friends. We only see her barking orders. We only see her trying to sabotage. And so when we get to the point of you know, you stole my stuff or whatever. And, um, there is a, yeah, I did it. So what you have cre you have, you have demonized this woman so badly that as an audience member, maybe I don't have sympathy for Addie. And with that, let's shift into part two, because when we take the story as it is, and we just, and we, we move, like I said, we, we, we cr- we're going to cross into the threshold of the story now. And, you know, my thoughts around the story itself, um, 
yeah, the script, some of the, some of these vignettes. Yeah. I didn't particularly care for it, but what I did take from it were warning signs, warning labels. And I thought instead of me talking about how terrible these things were, let's look at it from the perspective of let's take the story as it is. What can we, what should we be, be, be thinking about? So <clears throat> there were like four areas in, in particular that I was able to categorize in my head that I thought were really great places to think about this. Madam CJ Walker um, gets her name from, I think her second or third husband, her second husband, I believe. And when she claims that moniker of Madam, she elevates herself, um, not only sort of in the community, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, but she also elevates herself, I think, um, energetically. And she, at least in the portrayal of the, of the series, is got big dreams. And once she knows that she can pull this off, every time she's able to complete just one task, she's like, all right, it proves to her, yes, this is the right track and she keeps going. She's married to a man who is um, in advertising, who understands advertising. And she ends up, because she needs a lawyer, taking a black man who she meets operating as a bellboy into her employee to help her figure out how to navigate the laws around what she's trying to do. These two black men have a role to play in how she builds this empire. And the way in which the men are portrayed, the ways in which they sabotage themselves and, you know, by, you know, uh, by extension, her in some ways is realistic, I think, in its portrayal. But I think it's also a great opportunity to be like, pay attention. There is absolutely, we don't blink an eye um, at this notion of a man building an empire. And there's a woman, you know, beside him, behind him, underneath the floorboards, doing whatever, making sure that he looks the part, he sounds the part, you know, making these waves to make sure that this man can, you know, ensure his success. We don't think twice about it because in those spaces, patriarchy rules. And of course, a woman is a helpmate. But in this space, we see a woman who is fearless in the way that she is trying to spread her message. And we see how the men don't mind helping. Although her husband doesn't mind helping when it's a small operation. But as it starts to grow and as she continues to claim her, her work, because these are her ideas, um, this is her formula. This is her saying, this is her saying, I want a warehouse and all of these things. Uh, we see how the, the men around him, his father included, are all just slowly chipping away and how his ego cannot manage to see past all of that nonsense to say, she's doing something powerful. Let me just, let me, let me support that. Because the reality is that at that time, as an ad man, his opportunities are limited depending on where he is. The, the, the brother that, you know, becomes her lawyer. He's a damn bus boy. He's a bellboy. He's a bellhop. He's a grown man with a law degree who has to be a bellhop simply because racism. And she is able to pull these men into something that they had never imagined for themselves. And they fall from grace in some cases. And in other cases, they're able to manage through. 
I love the messaging around the warning messaging around this because I think even in this world right now, there are still these old habits around patriarchy that black men are beholden to. Let me be clear. Patriarchy does not serve you well, gents. It really doesn't. The bottom line is without women, most of y'all wouldn't, y'all wouldn't have made it out the house. And to deny women their space to grow and evolve as they see fit only shortens your lifespan. It only, you know, it only diminishes your, your output. Black women suffered the same fate as black men when it came to enslavement. The abuses that black women suffered are different. The suffering is still there. And one of my biggest issues with um, this Harlem Renaissance, 1920s reconstruction space is that once freedom is legally uh, part of what this about part of the constitution, what you find is that black men in a lot of cases want to hold on to these narratives around what men and women should do, even though the reality on the ground does not fit that paradigm. If I have been whipped and beaten and raped and molested and maligned because I was an enslaved woman and then we get free and as a result of of that freedom, I'm able to see things and dream big and do things the way that I think they should be done. I've suffered all this abuse. I don't want to be abused anymore. I want to go this way. Who are you to tell me that because I'm a woman that that's not to be? And so the way in which um, this master-slave paradigm is mimicked because women in the master-slave paradigm, white women, may have privilege around their race, but it's only in proximity to blackness. When it comes to their white, their male counterparts, they ain't got it. And at the same time, white women have not suffered in the same way when I'm talking about this particular time frame, the way that black women have suffered. So while, yeah, you may not have gotten some rights and things have been kind of raggedy, you have not had your baby snatched from you. You have not been raped or bred like some sort of cow. So we have to acknowledge that the unique experience of black women is unique. And so we shouldn't be hampering ourselves or the community's ability to grow simply because we want to behave like white folks. Because that's what this is about. One of the things that they do really a good job of you know, as far as the series is concerned, it shows just how much black people want to mimic white people. It's disappointing. But that is a very real thing. We even see it today. You know? What it takes to become this person, what it takes to become the millionaire, the billionaire, in a capitalist society, means that you are doing some really heinous things. So, one of the big warning labels for me was, and I hoped, you know, I hoped that, you know, for those that saw it, that it wasn't just reduced to, oh, you're making black men look bad. Bottom line is nobody has to make black men look bad. A lot of the conversations and a lot of the, um, the, 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 the arguments that are being had in that film mimic real life. It's true. You know, the idea that black men somehow deserve to be first. That particular scene with Booker T. Washington 
was powerful because that type of thinking that somehow if a black woman steps out in front and is able to to manifest something because she's not afraid to be like I'm going to push this that she should somehow dim her light because we don't want the man to look bad. Well, did the, did he push? Why does he why why is there this default to making sure he's okay if I did the work? And so that part I thought was really powerful. And what I hoped is that at the very least for those that watched it we could see those traps because that's a trap of white supremacy. That's a trap of the master slave paradigm. That's a trap of patriarchy. And I don't think that white men in particular have cornered the market on that. But when we get into black communities, the way that that patriarchal setup tries to tell black women that something is wrong with them because they want to be of their own being. Let me tell you something. You all are just, you are hurting yourselves because black women are the most magical beings on the planet Earth. What we are able to do, can't nobody do that. And so that lesson is something that I hoped that folks walked away with. Another thing that um, I wanted to talk through uh, was this idea of collaboration. There's a moment in the film where Madam C.J. Walker is so excited about Addie Monroe's product because it helped her that she wants to sell it. She wants to sing its praises. And so she, you know, tells her, you know, I'm going to go, you know, you know, she wants to do this. And when Maddie says, no, you're not the right look for my product, she steals some stuff and she goes and she sells it anyway to prove her point. Towards the end of the series, when Addie finally confronts, <coughs> excuse me, Madam C.J. Walker about the theft of her formula. She says, yeah, I stole it. She also says, if you would have worked with me when I asked you to, we could have done amazing things. Okay, let's talk this through. Collaboration, in my um, opinion, is exactly what it suggests. You have something, I have something, we come together and we figure out a way to build together. And with those things in mind, if, if, if we grow something together, it's because we we have brought our different tools to the to the table and we've been able to build this house as it were collaboration is not i want to be part of your company you won't let me and so i'm going to steal from you and uh prove to you that you need to be part of my company is that the best way to incite trust i was really intrigued by that because the use of the colorism at the beginning of this was this, you know, became this, this, this way to justify this behavior. True collaboration is about trust and respect. The issue of theft is also something that I think needs to be discussed in terms of how it's used. When Madam C.J. Walker says, I made it better, she probably did. She probably did. Um, and the reality is, is that based on the fact that the fictional character of Addie Monroe has a very different uh, type of hair, her products might not have been as effective. And remember, we're just talking about the storyline that's based on the series. I'm not talking about the truth of you know what was or what wasn't. I remember there is a conversation um, when she's testing out products where Madam C.J. Walker's husband says, um, your smells better. So that use of sulfur was, was a big thing back then. And I think if I remember correctly where I read 
um, Madam CJ Walker used lavender or used some sort of herb to mask the smell of the sulfur. And so it didn't feel like you were walking around with medication on your head. So she probably did make the product better, but she also stole. And so how do we, how do we, how do we work through that? Because capitalism is essentially theft. I mean, she's operating as a capitalist. Okay. And that issue of operating as a capitalist, as a black person in a society where at some point, because of capitalism, black bodies were the commodity is something that we need to be thinking through. And some people may say, well, it's just hair grease. Yes, it is just hair grease. But remember one of the people that she was really, um, like Madam CJ Walker saw as an inspiration was the white billionaire. And for, forgive me, for some reason, his name escapes me. I don't know why. Probably because, yeah, I don't know why. But she she keeps referring to this white billionaire, and I'm going to find it because it's driving me nuts. Um, as as this as this person that she's aspiring to be, and the system, the very system that helps perpetuate mass enslavement globally, is a hard system to be a part of when we're talking about you know how we're going to grow this hair care business, right? It also acts as, a, if, if this is the model, that means what you need to do in order to be successful is to steal, is to do shortcuts in some way, shape, or form. Now, I'm not saying that Madam C.J. Walker was a thief. I'm just saying that in the way that the story is told, um, there is this area around theft and collaboration that I think gets glossed over, and I think it is a warning. I think for all of us, you know, entrepreneurial sites and all of these things, you cannot grow a business if your expenses exceed your profits, how you cut corners, what those corners look like, how that affects your, um, your goals, particularly if as an entrepreneur, you are trying to help people at some point, if your goal is to be a millionaire, if your goal is to live a certain way, the, the, the politics around money are going to have to, you're going to have to take a look at it. And so I definitely felt like there was an opportunity to expand on that. The fact that she got away with being able to say, yeah, I stole it, so what? Was dangerously, um, it was dangerous. It was a dangerous message to send, especially because again, we have coupled this under the space of somehow this woman is owed something, talking about Madam C.J. Walker, simply because Addie Monroe did not want her to sell her products. And finally, um, the gaslighting. We see throughout the story, people gaslighting each other, husbands gaslighting wives, pimps gaslighting, you know, not pimps, you know, bookies gaslighting, you know, their cousins, um, Madam CJ Walker gaslighting Addie Monroe. You stole from me. And her response is, yeah, I did. So what? Let it go. You know, let it go. And so when we think about what is happening in that space, there is something very dangerous about someone having accused you of stealing or you having stole something and all you can say is let it go. So when we think about this as a whole, there are ways that we can use this movie to do and be better. And what I wanted to do, and hopefully what I did today was give you a little glimpse because I just realized it's almost an hour. Wow, it's a lot of talking. Uh, what I'm hoping that I accomplished today 
was gave you a little bit of um, insight into how we need to be thinking about our creativity. We really need to decolonize our art. We need to decolonize how we present black people as black people. And we need to be um, willing and able to own those spaces where we need work because otherwise, what's the point? You know, for all of the back and forth around black creators behind the scenes, it does, it, to me, it's, it's, a, it's, not, it's not worthwhile if you're just gonna end up doing what white people would have done or uh, what, what unresearched white people would have done, you know? Because I do think that there are some folks who would have taken the story and what they would have done with it, you know, regardless of not being black, would have been pretty, you know, on point because they took the time to research it. So we can't be lazy with our own stories. The final thought for this uh, episode, though, is to something to think about and feel free to comment, share. Um, let me know what your thoughts are. I wondered why Madam C.J. Walker and not Annie Malone. For the people who know of her legacy, she's well known. But for the most part, we have decided to make Madam C.J. Walker the one. We've said she has to be the one. And I'm wondering about that. Why is that? Why do you think you know Madam C.J. Walker and maybe not Annie Malone? So feel free to share that. Um, post in the comments. You know, hit me up. Let me know. Um, I appreciate you all for listening. This was a lot of fun. I really needed to get that out and uh and kind of create a space for for that conversation because again like i said it's not a it's not a direct um attack of the creators but it's really about what can we do better and when we are dealing with the mythological in in the black space how can we make sure that we are holding ourselves accountable and um, telling the story in a way that is actually better because we are involved so with that I'm going to sign off because this culture ain't going to create itself. Thank you so, so much for listening. Thank you so much for subscribing. I think we're up to like maybe 12 or 13 followers now. We are winning. I'm so excited. And I'll see you on the next go round. Take care. Hey folks, just wanted to take a minute to say thank you so much for listening to Cat's Corner, the podcast. If you would like to follow me on social media, please do so. I'm at K-A-T-S-K-O-R-N-E-R-C-O, Cat's Corner Co. on both IG and Twitter. You can also follow my company, Little Social Productions, at LSP underscore on the go. That is both at IG and Twitter. And always feel free to come visit us at www.lilsoso.com. L-I-L-S-O-S-O dot com. Thanks again for listening. Really appreciate it.